Hello, welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham, where I speak to a cross-section of really interesting people to find out what makes them tick. Now, my guest today is the truly inspirational Billy Munger. Now, if you don't know Billy, he's the teenage driving sensation who had a near-fatal crash in 2017, which resulted in him losing both his legs. Just one year later, he amazed even his own family and himself, I'm sure, by returning to single-seater racing in style with a podium on his British F3 debut. In this podcast, he talks to me about the horror of that day that changed his life forever. He talks about his friendship with Lewis Hamilton and how he's coping himself with life in the limelight alongside racing and, wait for it, his A-levels. He's actually doing his A-levels as we speak. And, of course, the incredible relationship and bond that is formed between his parents, himself and his sister as a result of his accident. I genuinely believe that a film will be made about this young man's story. And after listening to this podcast, I think you'll see why he's just won the hearts and minds of everyone he meets. Well, my guest today, Billy Munger, thank you for joining us. No worries. Uh, I know you are going to really be put through your paces at Sky today. You've got a lot on the agenda. Um, so I'm glad that we got the podcast in first <laughs> before you're too fed up with the sight of everybody and <laughs> yeah. uh, sick of talking about yourself because I know you're a modest guy, but um, your story really has gripped not just the motorsport world, but the nation as a whole. You know, just looking at the papers, it's been amazing the reaction that it's had to your story. But what I want to do before we talk about the accident and, and what you're going to be doing in the future is to talk a bit about the past, about your childhood. Oh, Which God. sounds ridiculous to talk to an 18-year-old about his childhood because you're still living it. But um, what was it like? Because I talked to your mum, I'll be honest. I had a long chat with your mum last night. Oh, no. Lovely Amanda. <laughs> what a woman. <laughs> and she told me a little bit about your childhood, but I'm interested to hear what you've got to say because it sounds to me idyllic. It sounds like just the dreamiest of places to grow up in. Yeah, well, it wasn't too bad, I guess you could say. Um yeah, obviously um, did a lot of go karting and stuff like that, like sort of most young drivers do when they're when they're eight years old. And um, but yeah, I we lived on a lived on the farm. I've lived there for my whole life, so I've kind of it's been quite, I guess you could say, like secure. Like, I've always been in the same place, same people. But so that's been pretty good. And so, just talk us through your family. So you got mum Amanda, dad Bobby, mm-hmm. sister Bonnie, yeah, and you Billy, yeah. You've done exactly what I've done in terms of an alliteration because I've got husband Wiggy, daughter Willow and son Wilf. <laughs> all the W's and all the B's. <laughs> your mum and I are just the odd ones out. But, um, you know, you, you're, you're a tight unit, aren't you? And you did a lot of bonding through the years, um, particularly, as you say, racing. Now, Bonnie's always been into her horses, hasn't she? Um, but she's also got heavily involved with your racing. So that's an amazing thing a good sacrifice on her part as well to give up her weekends to come and watch you race no yeah definitely I mean it's been always been sort of a, a thing we do as a family since I was sort of 8 years old um, obviously Bonnie had her horse riding stuff and when, when that was on obviously she went and did that but she was really good at kind of the weekends that she had off were normally spent racing so yeah I guess she had to kind of yeah dedicate her free time to, to what I wanted to do as well has she got a boyfriend yet? No, she hasn't got a boyfriend at the minute. That'll be why, because she's given up so much time for you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she'll meet a, a handsome racing driver. Maybe. <laughs> mm. um, now, we'll talk more about Bonnie a bit later, but um, I want to talk about this homemade truck 
of yours. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about it. So, yeah, um, Dad's always been good DIY-wise. Obviously, he um, does a lot of practical work for his job. Um, and when we kind of got more serious into the racing, he wanted to... We wanted somewhere to stay at the weekends and I think when we first started we had the, a really, really tiny camper and we kind of outgrew it a little bit for the amount of time we were spending in it. Um, so Dad kind of, yeah, um, he was looking for a, a truck. Obviously at the time it was kind of something that he wanted to get one he could custom build so that it would suit what we were doing at the weekends rather than just get one that was already done for him. So that became his kind of his long-term project. <laughs> and how long-term? How long does it take? Well, it was meant to be finished before we started <laughs> and we're coming to the end of its years now and it still isn't finished. <laughs> You're joking. See, I heard something about the, the sort of silver bubble wrap that was used as sort of insulation to keep you warm at night. Um, oh. But it looked a bit like a spaceship. Yeah, so um, that was one of his um, finest things. Um, <laughs> obviously, he, he, he was doing it all himself, so he kind of, um, yeah, just whatever he could get his hands on in terms of trying to, once he ticks a job off, he still had a few more left to go. So, yeah, we ended up having bright silver bubble wrap on the inside to insulate it. And, um, yeah, so it was kind of known as when the light, the LED lights came on at night, it felt like a spaceship inside. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a bit different to what, I guess, the other drivers were staying in at night. Yeah, a lot more fun, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, I reckon. Did it work, though? I mean, you, were, you, were you warm enough? Yeah, yeah, I was definitely warm enough. Um, I still complain, though, just to wind him up. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, he did, a, he did a good job, I guess. So it, where is it now? Are you, st- you are still using it? Yeah, so we're still using it. Um, it hasn't got many more years left in it, I reckon. <laughs> Obviously, we're moving about a lot more now for the racing. So, um, But, no, it's, it's definitely served its purpose, I guess you could say. I think we need to name it. Has it got a name? No, it hasn't got a name at the minute. I'm not okay, sure. Okay, maybe we we'll get the listeners to, to message us some name suggestions for it. Yeah, maybe. It sounds good, though. <laughs> um, joking aside, though, there's a lot of pressure on your family because it's an expensive hobby that you've got. Well, passion. It's more than a hobby, it's a lifestyle choice. Um, how was how that kind of. Um, well, I guess shown itself in, in terms of pressure on the family, but also a way of bringing you together as a unit. Because it's a great adventure that you've gone on together, but an expensive one. Yeah, no, definitely. Obviously, it's a, everyone knows it's not a cheap sport to get into. Um, I, I, I think my mum blames my dad slightly for, for getting me involved in the racing in terms of yeah, what, which kind of way it's led us all. But um, like I say, it does bring you close together, especially when you're competing against guys that, that budget isn't a problem and stuff like that. Because we they're not worried about it but it's something that we have to we have to focus on but i guess that only kind of when we get good results helps us out because it it means more to us i think um but yeah like you say it's um in some ways it's um it's a uh, it's quite painful how how much it, it costs and stuff and it's there's some delicate moments i guess you could say where if i've had a bad weekend you kind of think oh is it kind of worth it for for the amount that we're having to amount of time and energy we're having to put into it um but yeah, no, I guess um, when it, when the highs outweigh the lows. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a bit about the two years that you spent in um, Junior Ginetta because I know, again, that started out as a, such a family effort, didn't it? Because y- your family run the team, effectively. Um, your dad is the mechanic, your mum the tea maker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And no. the strategist. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you, yeah, when we first started Ginetta Juniors, it was something, it was the step from carts to cars. It was kind of the one, the, the choice at, at the time for us felt right. Um, but yeah, like you say, it was still very much family run. I mean, at the time, we didn't really, we didn't have the, the money to join a team or anything like that. So it was all 
that obviously dad's been he was mechanicing me out in carts for a while and he used to to engineer his own cars when he raced back in the day so um yeah, he kind of he kn- he knew roughly what he was doing. He knew how to make it go around without the wheels falling off. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was kind of how it all started. Because your dad, it's been very much his passion, but it wasn't one shared by your grandparents, was it? Like he he's had to really push your career in that in that sense. It's not something that the whole family necessarily bought into initially. No, no, definitely. Yeah, dad always tells me stories about when he raced that his mum and dad, although they were supportive of him racing, it wasn't something that they they made him get into or that they like kind of influenced him with it was all entirely based on his sort of decisions that to why he got into racing himself um and he uh, he had to engineer his own car and everything like that um from a young age so it was kind of i guess his sort of passion for the sport it was kind of yeah rub on rub off on me i guess so when did you first realize that this was you know you've been bitten by the racing bug I don't think you really realise that you've been bitten by it. It's kind of it starts off you going out like once a once a month um, in the car and just for a bit of fun, and then it, it turns into oh we'll go out one week in a month. Then it gets more and more until eventually every bit of free time you've got is kind of involved in in doing racing, going racing at weekends and stuff like that. So it kind of it, I'd probably say it snuck up on me a little bit how, in terms of how you went. I went from being a, a normal seven year old who he went to parties at the weekend um, with his friends and eventually it became, when I was eight, nine years old, it was sort of every three, four weekends a month I was out racing. And what did your mates make of that? At the time, they didn't really quite understand it, um, just because it's just, a, like I say, a different lifestyle. Um, you don't really, yeah, you you just think it's um, like indoor go-kart and like they don't understand how serious it gets quite early on, really. Um but yeah, it was kind of they were always supportive of me. But obviously, when I had to miss all their parties and stuff, sometimes they throw a hump. Yeah, I bet. I mean, um, do you think, looking back over the last sort of ten years or so, that you've missed out on anything that a normal inverted commas kid grows up with? You do miss out on a few things, um, like in terms of you're always um, at the racing and stuff. So if anything is going on with your friends from from school. And that different side of sort of your life, you, you do miss out on on stuff they've got going on. But no, I don't really, I don't really think it's held me back at all. Because obviously, although you miss out on times with your friends at school, you also make a lot of new friends from racing. So that kind of whole, um, the whole bond you get from everyone that you go racing with every, most weekends is kind of kind of makes up for. It, I think. Now, your, your second year um, in Genesta Juniors, you did join a team and you saw the results immediately because you won your first race with JHR. Just tell us about that. Was it was it the structure that you needed, the infrastructure as well? Yeah, I guess so. Um, obviously, my dad, he's, he's only got a certain amount of engineering skills of different cars up to a certain level. So in terms of being competitive it was always going to be a bit, bit of a disadvantage for him to run the car and, and me to drive it and um you know us to run things that way so when we joined the team it was kind of they they knew how to set the car up that little bit better and they also had other drivers for me to sort of compare myself to and it's that whole sort of the competitive aspect come, comes out more when you're in a team where you know you've all got the same sort of equipment um when I was racing and Dad was mechanicing, it was I didn't know if the car was good enough. I didn't know if I was good enough or where I was making um, where I was making the mistakes myself. So, but definitely being in the team, that whole competitive nature kind of yeah, definitely brought me on quite early. 
And then it was at that point that you felt, right, I can actually really make a career out of this. Yeah, well, I think I kind of got the bug for a career of it in, in karting still. I think I had it that early on. Um, obviously, I didn't know the sort of how hard it was going to be to make a career out of it, but I knew that I wanted a race for however long I could. Um, so the, I guess the genetic genius was sort of the first step in that sort of direction. Yeah, and so you were with them... Um, for a year before your accident and um, just describe that year for us plenty of trophies and high moments and yeah no definitely there's there's always been yeah high moments and low moment low moments in my career um yeah there's plenty of trophies plenty of good results so it was kind of yeah i enjoyed my time making that step up from karting and obviously go-karting itself we had i had a lot of success and won british titles and um and that was with dad running me so i, I guess that was that, at that stage where it's not as, as competitive as, as it is when you move up, it's kind of, they were probably yeah, some of the best days I've had in, in racing, um, especially when I started doing um, some of the European racing yeah. when there's 100-odd drivers on the grid. That was, yeah, that was an awesome feeling to go out there because you kind of feel like you're, you're representing your country a little yeah. bit. So, yeah, no, it's cool. And all the while you are juggling schoolwork. You did your GCSEs alongside... See, I've heard the story that you actually had to do your GCSEs at a different school that was near Alton Park so that you could do your GCSE and then get back in the car on the same day. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is commitment. Yeah, no, that is commitment. That, it was true. Um, yeah, so I had the Alton Park um, test days and I had exams to do as well. Um, but we couldn't... At that time, I'd not, I don't think I'd driven the Alton Park circuit before so it was kind of essential for me to do the testing um so yeah we we managed to arrange and sort out um me to go up to a local school and yeah and do my exams there which was weird because obviously walking into a school in a different uniform all these people were looking at you like why is this who is this guy why is he here <laughs> um and it, yeah it did feel a bit weird but yeah managed to get them done and then get, yeah, get back to Alton do some testing as well so uh, did you find it difficult to sort of motivate yourself to do schoolwork? Because I know you've got your A-levels coming up this summer. That is unbelievable. I mean, I know you would have done them last year um, had, had the accident not happened, but are you finding it, the pressure, difficult to juggle? Or have you quite enjoyed having, you know, a kind of parallel life, if you like? Um, I'd say I find it quite difficult, really. I mean, obviously, with the GCEC, GCSEs, it wasn't too bad, Um I think I managed to cope with them quite well. And then obviously was meant to do the A-levels last year, but obviously had the accident, so I couldn't do them then. Um, but doing them this year, it's been tough, um, just purely because obviously I've got a lot a lot more commitments and I have to put a lot more time in at the minute to the racing because like, I'm, I'm developing all these hand controls myself and, and learning things all the time from doing sim stuff and testing. So it's not sort of... But with the racing at the minute, it's not sort of I've got to put more time in the other drivers as well as, like you say, doing the A levels. So um, it's something that juggling the time is quite difficult. But no, hopefully it all goes well. Um, the racing side of things at the minute is looking good. So hopefully the school goes all right as well. Do you see the importance and relevance of still keeping up your schoolwork, or is a part of you that's like, oh come on, I'm just going to be a racer. Don't need to do this. <laughs> Yeah, obviously there's always that part inside of you where you think, like, is is it really worth it? Because it's, like, splitting my attention between racing and, and school and how that all how I'm dividing it up and how that works. But, yeah, um, obviously it is important and I've done... I've balanced school and racing for years now, so to not kind of get those final sort of exam results out of the way um, would be a bit... I think I'd, yeah, 
I'd be, look back in a few years and probably think, well, I should have just done that and got that out of the way anyway, just because you you go to school since you're you're six years old or whatever it is, and yeah, to to stop quite a year before the end mm. would be a bit bit of a yeah, lackluster attempt. Yeah. So so what uh, exams are you going to sit in the summer? So I've got um, my maths exams, um, business and economics as well. Oh, so. three toughies. Yeah, so no, I didn't make it easy for myself. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, they, they're all, I'm all um, pretty confident at how I'm going to do, but it's obviously, yeah, see how we go on. How did the mocks go? The mocks went okay. Um, they went better than expected, really, because at the time that was sort of right in the heart of when I was I was literally spending three or four days a week down at, at Carlin on the sim or testing. So it was kind of, they, when I did my mocks, it was probably the most busiest I've been with the racing side of things. Um, so that, no, I was quite happy with how they went. Um, so come June, it'll be a breeze, right? Yeah, ideally. <laughs> God, I remember that feeling like it was yesterday. And it wasn't yesterday, it was a long time ago. Um, right, let, let's talk about the accident because um, we are, it's not even a year yet, is it? No, not a year, no. <sighs> I think it's two more weeks into a year. It's gone uh, so quick. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I remember meeting you at uh, Mike Tyndall's golf day and you just had the accident and your spirits were remarkable. But how were you feeling inside? I mean, d- just um, just cast your mind back before the accident and then enduring and just describe it to us. Just tell us and anyone who out there who doesn't know what actually happened. Uh, yeah, so obviously it was, yeah, like you say, nearly a year ago now and... Um, it was just a, it was the second round of the the F4 British Championship, which we we were doing quite well in at the at the time. It was sort of I think we had two or three podiums in the first four or five races, so it was kind of we were right up the sharp end. Um, and the aim was always to fight for the title. Um, and then obviously had um had the accident um in in that uh, sixth race of the year, I think it was at Donington. Um, just a stationary car just spun off, and my view was kind of blocked by. By two other cars that I was racing with, and as they pulled out the way last minute, it was kind of this car was just suddenly all I could see. So it was just it was one of those sort of accidents where it's no one's fault, but it's just one of those things that can happen sometimes. Mm. But it was yeah, obviously yeah, it was a tough time at at um, at that point for everyone involved, like my family and friends and stuff. Yeah. So what do you actually remember of it? Or have you been able to sort of block a lot of the pain out? Um, I was I wasn't even in pain at the time. I was I think I was awake for the first forty minutes after my accident, and then they put me into an induced coma. But in terms of being in pain, obviously the medics medics were were really good at getting to me quite quick. Um, and at the time, like I said, I didn't I felt fine. Um, so I told them to to go look at the other driver because because I did, I felt fine. Or I could hear him in in pain. So I thought. Uh, yeah, I'd send them over there, and it wasn't until sort of five minutes afterwards where sort of the adrenaline kind of goes away, and you kind of just sat there, and um, then they started to like to to feel a little bit more, um, yeah, a bit more in pain from the accident, and I realised that my injuries were were worse than what I thought when I was just mm-hmm. sat in the car waiting for when the medics to kind of finish dealing with the other driver. So, what did you think at the time on the scene? How bad did you think it was? I know it was quite bad, because just purely off people's faces. I mean, it's it was a weird feeling being sat in the car, not being able to to get out because of of how bad the crash was. But but just looking around at sort of the doctors' faces and everything, um, you could see not panic spreading them, but they they knew how serious it was at quite early on. Mm. Um, so I guess that is it was a bit of a it was kind of a helpless feeling at, at that point because you you can't 
you can't do anything. You've just got to rely on what everyone else is gonna do for you. Um, but yeah, luckily they do they do a good job, and I'm still here. Absolutely. Now, in that forty minutes that you just talked of, your sister was with you, wasn't she? Um, tell us what you remember of the conversation that you had. With yeah, so Bonnie. yeah, she was still um, still with me by the side of the car. See, they um, when the doctors went out on track, they asked if any of the family wanted to come out. And at that point, my mum was sort of she was a bit fragile, so dad was looking after her, and um, Bonnie said that she'd go. Um, yeah, and then she was kind of yeah um, perched by the my side by the side of my car for. Like you say, the first forty minutes that that I could remember, um, before they they put me to sleep. So they, yeah, she was kind of there the whole time. Um, I can't really remember what she was saying to me. I think she was just more been been there for support, kind of. Um, but yeah, no, it was good to have someone a familiar face by your side when something like that's happening. Because you're close in age, aren't you? What, like 14, 15 months apart? Yeah. She's younger. Yeah, 14 months, she's younger than me. So, you know, you're you're almost twins in a way. Um, my kids are actually the same age gap. And already they kind of squabble and love each other to a ridiculous extent. It's, it's either one or the other. Is it the same with Bonnie? Yeah, it's exactly the same. I mean, yeah, when we were younger, we always used to argue with each other. But now we've got a bit older and stuff, it's... Um, it's, yeah, a bit of both, really. We're either arguing with each other or, yeah, we're really close. So, in a way, I bet that, that must have helped a massive amount, having her there when you needed her most. I mean, it must have been tough for her. Have you talked about it afterwards? Uh, no, it's not something that we've really talked about. Um, yeah, she Bonnie's got, you know, she's a fiery redhead, my, my little sister, so she can look after herself. <laughs> she's normally one look, trying to look after me. So, um, yeah, it's not really been something that, um, I guess, that we've had to talk about Um but yeah, that no, was just—it was good in that moment to kind of to have her by my side, even though yeah, we weren't arguing at the time. Luckily enough. <laughs> uh, and then, then they put you into this induced coma that then lasted for three days. Um, what do you remember of waking up and and the realization that actually you had lost both legs? Um, yeah, it was obviously a, a bit of a surreal moment. Like I said, I'm, the only thing that helped me, I think, in that situation was the fact that I knew it was going to be fairly serious beforehand, before they put me to sleep. I think it would have been tougher for me to, to think everything was going to be OK and then wake up and then them tell me such devastating news. But um, you know, it definitely helped uh, for them to kind of ease me into it, I guess you could say. Um, and then having family and friends around when I kind of realised the injuries, um, that was obviously helpful as well. So, no, it was kind of... Although it's such a shocking thing to find out, um, yeah, there was a few a few things that happened in the build-up to it that I think for me helped me to to move on with it a bit quicker. And how did you move on? Like, I mean, again, as I say, I, I saw you just weeks later, and I couldn't believe that you were up and about and in, in, interacting with people and and not feeling sorry for yourself in any way. But what was going on inside? Uh, it's, it's difficult to say, really. Obviously, I, I didn't really have a chance to um, to sit in hospital in the dark and kind of get myself down about it, but just because I had so many bubbly kind of positive people around me, like my family were there, um, all of my friends from school and from racing, um, all the members of the team, they were always coming to the hospital. I don't think I had a day in hospital where I didn't have more people than I was meant to have <laughs> in, the, in, the, in my room with me. Um, which was obviously really helpful because it it just feels normal when you've got mm. people around you that you 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 know. If I was sat in hospital and I didn't have anyone around me that I really knew, then it, it might I might have felt a bit different. But no, it definitely helps out a lot. 
And the motorsport community really did rally, didn't it? I mean, I remember this just outpouring of support for you, firstly on social media and then in actual terms, people fundraising. The crowdfunding was just immense. Just tell us about that and, and, the, and that kind of boost that it gave you. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, obviously, when I had my accident, they, like I say, they put me in a induced coma and I can't remember anything from that Sunday evening when it happened to, I think I woke up um, in the middle of Wednesday, so it was sort of three days after the, the accident that I was kind of, although I'd been awake with all the drugs I was in, that I had in my system, I wasn't really in the room at the time, even though I was awake. So, um, yeah, that was sort of the first sort of thing I could remember. And obviously at that point, um, the Just Forgiven page had already gone up and was live, so it was kind of... I woke up and they just people were showing me, look at all this support you're getting, and it was kind of, it was there from a, the, the earliest point I remember the support was there. So it was, um, yeah, a bit surreal really. But um, yeah, like I say, I I didn't even know anything was <laughs> was going on. I was yeah, um, yeah, daydreaming, I guess you could say. And then yeah, I woke up and to all this this support, and it was a bit a bit overwhelming. But it was yeah, a pretty cool feeling to have um, from from early days anyway. How do you think your, your mum and dad have coped? Um, I think at the time they, they were putting on strong faces when I was in hospital. Um, yeah, the doctors were, were telling them behind closed doors. My mum was telling me that they said that you've got to be strong because obviously however their attitude was towards it rubs off on, on how I'm going to feel about it. Um, so no, they definitely they did an awesome job early on of being, being strong and being able to cope with what had happened. But I think... Um, yeah, it was obviously a tough time for him. They didn't. I think it's, it probably affected affected my dad early on more than it affected my mum, just because he was the one who got me into racing. So I think at some stage he probably felt a bit guilty for for what what had happened to me. Um, but now he kind of, I I was quite quite early on. I quite, I just told him that it was something that or that he couldn't force me to do it. Although he wanted me to do it from a young age, it was something that I wanted to do myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. So I think that kind of helped him get over things. And then obviously my mum, with everything going on, um, trying to be the strong one and, and hold everyone together, um, it was tough on her as well. And I think she's taken a bit longer to to get come to terms with it just because early on she, she probably blocked it out more than the rest of us did. Um, but no, I think we're getting there. And like I say, we're quite, quite strong as a unit. Um, so I think that's how everyone's helping each other out. And do you think it has brought you closer together? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, no, I would. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, obviously, there's been times where you have it gets someone down, and it is an argument, and it's kind of it it is quite a testing time for everyone. But I think in general we are closer together than we were before. So do you talk about it a lot as a family? Um, not really. Not unless it's brought up. I mean, it's kind of some of us. I don't mind talking about it as much as my mum does just because people have asked me questions about it quite regularly since it's mm. happened. So it's kind of something that I've just been uh, um, made aware of and talked about a fair bit. Well, my mum kind of, like I say, blocks it out a bit more. So when it does come up, she probably is more affected by it than I am. Mm. That's really interesting because I, I, I read something about PTSD and that if you have a big trauma, that you just need to keep talking until it no longer feels scary to talk about. The more you bury it, then the minute something does come up, then it acts as a catalyst to like open the floodgates and you start crying and you get very emotional again. And so I guess maybe talking about it has been your therapy in some way. Yeah, I probably think so. I mean, like 
I was sort of, every, like I say, when every day I had people in the hospital, and even if we weren't talking about that, we were talking about racing-related things. So it was kind of, I think the whole having people around me that were talking about things to do with racing and obviously what happened to me quite early on, I think that really helped me to kind of just come to terms with it. And like you say, I wasn't, I wasn't after a few days, I wasn't really scared of what had happened anymore. Obviously, it, it lasts longer than a few days. It's not that simple, but but the the majority of what had happened and the overwhelming feeling I had is kind of was kind of gone quite soon. Yeah. God, I mean, I, I can't imagine though that the shock of looking down and your legs not being there. You know, being so young and athletic and like so into your racing. Did you feel? Um, able to sort of process this idea of getting back to racing quite quickly or did was this was there was there a process to that like did you did you initially think well that's it I can't ever race again um there was that feeling I'd say the the majority of the time I had that kind of feeling was when I was in panic in the car I was like oh this is it I won't be able to race again obviously at the time you felt that when you were in the car yeah the time yeah you you remember feeling that yeah so yeah that was the kind of the, the only real time for me where I was concerned about obviously about the how bad my injuries were but but also about yeah I thought well yeah this is it I won't be able to race again kind of and at the time in the car I probably wasn't because of the amount the extent of the injuries and the panic that was setting in I kind of I probably wasn't yeah ready to to think about if I could race again or not mm. it was kind of something that it was just oh I won't race again and block that out and then I was trying try and get through what was going on um but yeah, I think the whole talking to people after what happened um, about racing and stuff, and if I wanted to get back racing quite early on, um, same sort of thing helps out a lot. So when did when did you kind of feel actually? Do you know what this is something I can do? I I don't know if there was one moment where it kind of uh, I didn't really have that one light bulb moment. It kind of just it just came about over the sort of the weeks I was in the hospital more and more. I mean. Like I say, I had my my engineers and my mechanics and everything coming to the hospital, and and they were talking to me. We just in general we got talking about people like Alex and Ardy and stuff mm. like that, and it was good to for me to kind of hear about other people that had gone through. I mean, he went through pretty much exactly the same injury as I've gone through, um, and he got back to racing. So for me, it was kind of a moment where before you don't know if it's possible or not and now you know oh right so that is possible if I if I'm up to it and I and I want to try and do it um so it's kind of just I guess unlocking the door to get back to racing if I wanted to mm. and then talking about it with everyone kind of was sort of the defining thing that kind of made me yeah want to you know open the door and see if see if I could do it and did you always want to or did you think do you know what this is just too dangerous I'd quite like to be a regular kid again <laughs> um I I wouldn't say I I was prepared to cut racing out of my life because it's it's just been my life since I was seven years old. Um, there was times where I doubted whether one I I yeah one if I want to race again or two if I if I was gonna be able to. But like I say, the whole Alex and Ardy thing was probably a big turning point for me in terms of he he raced again and I probably I, at the time I was thinking he probably might not have wanted to as well. Um, it wasn't something with Alex where he went straight back into to racing the, the next few weeks. It's it's a long process. It mm. takes time, um, and luckily I, I've managed to to have the support around me to get back up on my feet quite soon. 
Um, but yeah, it was. I wouldn't say I was prepared to cut racing out of my life at sort of um, uh, any point. It was just depend, just varying on how I was going to get back into it and what I was going to do mm. with it. Do you know when you talk about Alex and Ardy, it just makes me think how important role models are. Mm. Like at any age, to have someone to look up to and emulate and think, well, you know, if they can do it, so can I. And and one significant role model for you has always been Lewis Hamilton well before your accident Mm -hmm. but he's someone that's really come forward and supported you hasn't it just tell us how that relationship started yeah well um, obviously when I had my accident I was getting lots of messages of support not only on the just giving but just from yeah from all over people from all over but um, yeah my um, my mum and dad were showing me messages of uh, it was Jensen Button and Max Verstappen and then obviously Lewis as well showed his support um, quite early on and just to have that kind of like like say a role model kind of n- notice what's happened to you and be prepared to yeah to to wish you the best it's got, that was quite a cool feeling for me it was a bit surreal but you know it was something that I enjoyed and then obviously um, you know um, going to the Grand Prix with him and getting that invite was um, again it was sort of it didn't feel real because <laughs> before you always wanted to someone like that to to notice what you you as a young driver and kind of wish you support um and yeah to kind of yeah that moment where he kind of invited me to Grand Prix and I got to meet him for the first time properly um it was awesome was it a bit weird was it it, it was weird <laughs> yeah really weird i mean like you say it's the whole role model thing of i'd been watching him race since he was 8 and you never think when you're a young driver that you're going to have people like that watching you and what you're doing. Um, so to have support and to, yeah, for him to kind of wish me the best and invite me to the Grand Prix and see see how I was getting on was, yeah, like you say, it was, it was really weird. Um, <laughs> but no, it was something that I think really helped, has really helped push me on. Yeah, great morale boost. I think Lewis gets a lot of criticism for various things, but one thing you can't fault him on is his empathy. And he's got such a big heart. He does a huge amount for charity. Obviously, inviting you to the British Grand Prix was a very public gesture, but he's done a lot behind the scenes as well. He's always been there supporting you and really interested in your development, isn't he? You know, well away from the cameras and, and, and the reporters and the newspapers. Yeah, no, exactly. It's that kind of. Obviously, when you, when it was quite, like I say, it was going to be a big weekend for him. British Grand Prix is always a massive weekend that everyone ex- kind of expects him to win. Um, so he was obviously under a lot of pressure at the time to to deliver himself and kind of having a, me along there and supporting me isn't, isn't something that he, he had to do. Um, he had enough on his plate already. So to, to do that was, that, like, that kind of gesture was awesome. And then obviously away from, from all that, I've had, yeah, had time to to talk to him about it and kind of him to to be there and I think yeah well I showed him my look at the controls of my car a few months ago and that was that was really cool when I went to the Mercedes launch so there's, there's been times where we've just been able to yeah to go and, and catch up which has been cool uh, do you know I remember seeing the picture of you like on the pit wall with Toto and there's Nicky Lauda and Lewis and it was a bit like one of those when your face is superimposed yeah. like Madame Two Swords or something but that was really happening for you suddenly you were just propelled into the the you know the hierarchy of the biggest team in Formula One at the biggest race of the calendar. There were you, Billy Munger. I mean, it must have been an insane feeling. <laughs> it was weird because um, <laughs> obviously you, you watched it. Yeah, like you say, they're a massive team. 
and those three guys you've just listed off are probably the most influential people in in the team and I'm sat there as a young driver thinking like wow I'm really sat next to to Toto Wolff and Nicky Lauda and and, oh here's Lewis (laughs) so that was really really weird but awesome feeling it was um yeah, something I won't I won't forget definitely. No, I mean all of this has really kind of propelled you into the public eye. How how have you kind of coped with that? Because I know that you wouldn't want to be famous for your accident. You'd want to be famous for your racing. Um, but you know, there have been benefits because you have had support coming through the recovery process as a result. But it must have been quite a lot to handle. You know, only eighteen, but also so much going on with your body and your mind and your emotions. And suddenly everyone's interested in you as well. Like, how did you cope with that? That's that was probably one of the the weirdest things for me to get to get used to was obviously before I was just a normal eighteen year old racing driver um, and I was just I went racing um, because I wanted to and I wanted to do well at it and I wanted to make a career of it and it but kind of the one thing that I didn't want to happen after my accident which at the start is obviously it's obviously going to be part of it but I hope now that I'm trying to change is. Obviously, being yeah, like you say, being known for the accident is is what was that was the case at the time because before I was just a normal eighteen year old, and then afterwards it, it became everyone was wanted to support me, and but that was all they knew knew me for. Mm. Obviously, they knew I raced before, but they didn't know they didn't know how good I was or what what level I was trying to get to. Um, so that was that's kind of that was one thing that motivated me to to get back racing more than anything was to kind of brush under the carpet the fact that I was known for my accident and try and yeah show people what I did before and what I can do now. Yeah, well, yeah. you did that last weekend. Yeah. I mean, my God, to put it P5 in qualifying was something else. Then to get onto the podium in your debut. Uh, just tell us about the weekend and 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 the roller coaster of emotions. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it's been a long time coming, I guess you could say. I mean, although this year has gone really quick, it's felt like a lifetime since I've been in the yeah. behind the wheel of a of a race car. Actually, racing itself. I mean, obviously we've done a, we did the testing and the pre season to so that I could race again. And um, in qualifying, I was I was happy with P five. Like that was an that was a weird feeling to go out for qualifying and kind of know that wherever yeah however quick you were you were going to start the race from from there it was yeah a bit weird but um yeah obviously i was really happy to get fifth in qualifying that was a good good way for me to start um and it was good for me more than anything it was good for me to reward the team because although i've had to put in a lot of hard work to to get to where i am now i wouldn't be on the grid if it wasn't for for the team carlin and for every for developing because it's all been done in house and they've developed the controls for me and and they've made sure they're good enough for me to to be able to do stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that it was um, it was good for me to kind of show those guys what what we were capable of capable of um, in qualifying and then obviously to get P three in the race. Um, yeah, I, w- I, w- I would have been happy. I, we're probably top ten before the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't expecting to go there and and be on the podium or fight for wins. It was kind of, let's get this first weekend out the way, and then kind of build on it for the rest of the season. Well, now it's kind of been, yeah, I've been thrust. I was like, I felt like I've been thrust onto the podium in my first race, and no, yeah, you earned that- it. You earned <laughs> it. Yeah, no, um, yeah, it was cool. It was a good feeling um, for me. It was, yeah, like I say, it was that whole, um, the whole racing itself and being 
um, out there to to yeah to race against others. Obviously, I did the testing and and that's one you get one feeling from testing. But when you're actually out there racing, um, that's it's just a completely different feeling. And at first, the first few laps of the race, it, I was a bit like a rabbit in headlights. <laughs> like yeah, I did. It was kind of everything felt like it was going at 100 mile an hour for me. Well, it was, but, but it was yeah, <laughs> it was. But it felt yeah, it felt like everything was yeah moving so fast. Um, but yeah, once I managed to kind of get into a bit of a rhythm, um, and I knew I was in the worst thing about it was that I knew I was in third place from lap one. So it's kind of first race back, lap one, you're in third. Don't do anything wrong. You're in third. Wow, <laughs> the old magic started flooding back. Yeah, God, that, I mean, spare a thought for your poor mum though. I mean, <laughs> she didn't watch any of it, did she? No, she does. She didn't want to watch any of the racing, which I can't really blame her for. I've I've tried to to get her to come to the testing so she kind of gets more used to it but mm. I think she's the one that's not been exposed to it that much or she's tried to shut herself away from from the racing for the early stages which is probably now why well she struggles with it more than my, my dad or my sister do mm. um but she she was got she was good this weekend she was getting she's getting better she's getting more used to it it's obviously I I can't explain to her what how how comfortable I am in the car. I think for her, she there's probably some part of her that thinks is he is he comfortable um, being back out there racing. But yeah, it's it's hard for me to kind of communicate to her how, how normal it feels that when I'm at, in the car, I don't feel like I've had a crash. I just feel like I'm just racing again. Which you, it, you're able to block it out completely. Mm, yeah, I, I do. I probably that's one of the most relaxed places I, I have at the minute which it might sound really really weird but no it just I feel really relaxed in the car and um yeah I just feel like I'm I'm back to kind of who I was before a bit and obviously I've got all the support outside of things which is great but having that feeling of just being feeling like you're normal again um is really cool. So do you think the weekend's results big turning point for you do you feel like well, as you say, it's like second nature in a way. But do you feel like this is a big turning point in your life and in your mindset? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, it was an important weekend for me because I could have quite easily gone back out, out there for racing, and like I might have gone out and not liked it at all and been been. Although I've been fine with the thought of racing, actually racing itself might have might have scared me when I went back out there. So I think getting this first weekend out the way and realizing that how normal it felt is definitely a, a big step forward for me. Um, and to be, like, to be on the podium so early on in the season, first race of the year, um, yeah, that gives me, just gives me massive confidence for the rest of the year because I've, I've learned, I had a certain way of driving a car for 10, 11 years and now I'm doing it a completely different way. Um, so to, yeah, to be that competitive this early on, um, I was hoping to be fighting for podiums come the end of the season. Now I'm I'm fighting for podiums at the start of the season. It's kind of like, where do we go from here? And it's um, yeah. Now 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 I feel like I can yeah hopefully fight for wins soon. Well, maybe when your mum hears this, it's she'll realise that this is part of the healing process for you, and that will really help her. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I think yeah. I think she's. I probably think at some point she's thought that. I feel because I've raced all this time, I feel like I have to race again, and because of the support I've had, I, she probably think, yeah, she thinks that maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to, yeah, get an idea of what she might be thinking, but I, I don't feel pressured to to race because of the support I've had 
for being a racing driver. I just want to do it because it's something that I enjoy. And going back out there and, and being on the grid, obviously I was apprehensive at first. Um, it was my first first race in over a year. I felt a bit rusty. <laughs> um, but no, it was good to yeah, to get that one um, yeah, out the way. And now I'm just yeah, looking forward to the rest of the season. Do you know what? In some ways, you're really lucky because you're 18 and you know what you want to do with your life. And you've known since you were eight years old. Mm. Some people get to 60 and still don't know what they want to do with their lives. Yeah, no. And I think this is this whole experience has really highlighted for me and really helped me have a, like a clear mind on that's what I want to do um, which obviously makes the A-levels more difficult because <laughs> in my head I know what I want to do but you've got to do the A-levels as well that pesky maths exam's <laughs> getting in the way yeah exactly um, but no it's um, yeah I feel pretty good about yeah, what's to come um, and yeah I'd like to think that we can we, I can keep moving forward I, I don't want to kind of be stuck in kind of what's happened to me over the last year I'm I'm quite looking forward to to yeah brushing that one under the carpet and kind of moving on to mm. to what's yeah this what I've got in store this year so I've got yeah 21 more races left to do this season um it's yeah, only just begun <laughs> Do you know, when you're about 50 and you're running Mercedes as a team principal, you're going to thank your mum for making you do economics and maths because they'll come in very handy, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they and might business, do. obviously. <laughs> um, now, I think a lot of people don't know that actually it wasn't until December that you could even consider racing again because the FIA had this strange ruling that only fully able-bodied people could race in single-seaters. But that changed and you had this pretty full-on meeting with them and you kind of put your claim forward as to why it should change. And really, when you asked the questions, no one could give you a full answer as to why they had that rule. Can you just describe it to us? Tell us what happened. Yeah, it was kind of... Obviously, when I, I realised, OK, I want to go back racing now, I'm... Quite early on, I think it was 11 weeks after my accident, I went out on a, a funk-up car to get my licence back and kind of that all went well. But, yeah, that only allowed me to, to race in at the time in GT cars because that's what the FIA said that, um, that disabled drivers could race in. Um, and I just found it really weird and on how um, people could race in some classes but not in others. I mean, driving a car around a circuit... Doesn't matter what car it is, it's, you're still doing the same things. Um, so yeah, like I say, getting that rule changed and having those conversations with the FAA um, were really important. Just to, because it's kind of that's where I wanted to go from from eight years old. And for someone to tell you you can do this but you can't do that, it didn't really sit well with me, to be honest. Um, but they were really good um, in terms of they knew quite early on that, that the rule wasn't really shouldn't really be there. And they didn't really put up a fight to to try kind of protect what they what they had said before. It was kind of quite early on. They were like, right, um, if that's something you want to do, we can work together and we can we can make it happen. So it was good on their part for for them to be so supportive um, and change their I guess change their principles for for just for for me. Um, well, ultimately, it isn't just for you because yeah. if you do nothing else with your life from here on, you will have left a legacy for other disabled drivers now because you've changed a ruling. That's a massive landmark case. I mean, that's, you know, you set a precedent here. Yeah. Well, it must have been pretty intimidating, though, going to the room with all those old men. Were they all old men? <laughs> I'm just assuming. I've just got this idea <laughs> yeah, in my head. No, no there, was, um, there was a couple of young guys in there. Um... Were there any women? No, uh, uh, not sure. Oh. 
<laughs> that means no. We'll work on that. Yeah. Um, so, no, it was kind of... It was a bit weird going in there and trying to yeah, put a case forward for it because, obviously, no-one's done it before. So, but they're, the whole point of them changing rules is because they've got to believe in that you, you're capable of doing it. Mm. So... Um, so no, luckily I, I I've managed to yeah to make them see what what I wanted to do and and why I thought the rule shouldn't be there and they they were on my side um, and that yeah it just helped like you say it's not just for me because if if I ever stop racing whenever I do there will come a point in my life where racing won't be won't be something that I want to do anymore or I can't do anymore competitively. Um, yeah, at least that rules out of the way. So if, it, if there's someone else that wants to do it, they can. You go down in the history books. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I don't really think of it like that. There you go. Um, I guess the the issue that people have is um, the extraction process, but that's something that you're able to allay any fears about getting out of the car, you know, very quickly. Um, just tell us about that as a physical process. Is it you know because for anyone who doesn't know, that is the important thing is to is get to get out of the car in the event of an accident or emergency. Yeah, so obviously that was kind of their one concern was, will I be able to extract myself out of the car in a certain amount of time? And I completely understand why that would be a concern. Obviously, um, it's a big, big part of it. Motorsports, like we know, is dangerous. And if I have an accident or the car sets on fire, if you can't get out, then you're putting yeah your life at risk. So um, yeah, it was to be to be honest, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be in terms of getting out of the car. Um, when they told me it was seven seconds, I was a bit at first concerned that, wow, well, will I be able to do that? Um, will it work? Um, but no, I think it was the. I think I had a couple of goes with the team once we kind of we had the car ready, and before before they even came to kind of film me and make sure that they were happy of it. But yeah, the first couple of goes went well. We, we were sort of yeah you know, under the the time we needed to 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 beat. Um, and yeah, it was fine. We didn't really have any hiccups, but it obviously it's gonna be different for for other people with with disabilities because everyone's got different injuries. Mm. Um, I was quite fortunate um, that I was yeah I was um, I was quite sporty before and quite able to obviously I raced before um, and did other things. So that kind of I guess helped keep me sort of in in a good enough condition that I could get out of the car quick. Mm. So talk about life on a practical level for you. So you, your right leg, you've still got the knee lever, and that's pretty significant, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. that helps massively with mobility. The left leg, you haven't. Mm-hmm. And the right leg, you use for braking as yeah. a result because you've got that lever. Just just tell us about the prosthetics that you, you're wearing right now um, and the sort of day-to-day sort of adapting and, and manipulating and, you know, kind of how do you function? Um, obviously, I'd say in general, day-to-day life compared to me getting back out racing with prosthetics on, for me personally, day-to-day life and doing everything that I want to, because I could quite easily, I can get put my legs on in the morning, and I can quite easily walk around the house and and do stuff like that, and um, and on a flat floor and be fine. But in terms of being practical, in terms of if I want to go out with friends and there's there's going to be stairs. There's going, it's going to be slippery. There's all sort of it's different things you kind of got to think about. Um, obviously, there's some stuff that I can't do, um, but the amount of stuff I can't do, I want it to be as small as possible. Um, so that's been for me 
probably where being on prosthetics has been tougher because when I'm in the car, there's as long as I can do that one thing, then nothing else really matters. But on day to day life, there's it doesn't matter if you can do one thing because there's going to be other things that you want to do that you can't. So mm. that's been yeah, the probably the biggest learning curve for me has been on walking on prosthetics outside of anything to do with racing, just being practical. Does it hurt? It doesn't hurt. It just takes a long time to get used to it. I mean, obviously, it's a strange feeling at first, um, and some people deal with it better than others. Um, I had to have a bit of follow-up surgery after my accident, um, just where um, they tried to, like you say, on my left leg, they um, they had to get rid of my knee because um, of the damage done to it in the accident. But they all, you always want to keep as much of the bone as possible. But um, so that it was kind of I had to have a bit of follow-up surgery on that, um, but it was kind of for me it wasn't. I kind of felt that I dealt with it quite well, um, purely because I was active before, um, and obviously the amount of um, fundraising and support I had meant I could get the the best help that I needed. And at the time, obviously there's some people that are a lot less fortunate than I am in terms of um, they might not have been sport at um, sporty before and active and. And then they have something that happened like this to them and they find it tougher to, to deal with it. Um, and then there's obviously the the level of technology out there now. I, I've, I've been lucky in terms of what what the equipment I've got now and obviously have, not having that knee lever um, is a big loss, but having the technology out there to, to kind of deal with that, I've been lucky to get that, but not everyone does. And so I do feel really grateful for all the support I've had mm day-to-day life probably I felt I feel more of an impact in day-to-day life than I do with the racing um just because with the racing it is quite a simple um shorter prosthetic where we bring the pedals up close to me and then the rest of it's done on the steering wheel um well for yeah day-to-day life it's all all purely if I if I can't walk properly on my legs or if I can't get up steps then there's nothing out there that I can Mm. do about it and and does the do your legs kind of change shape and does the pain come and go? Do you get phantom pain? Like How, how does it I was Yeah, it I was quite fortunate with the, the phantom pain because obviously some people, they get it quite bad and it's there for a long time. Obviously, there's certain certain things that, the, that they tell you to do. They tell you to... They, they give you special cream to massage at the end of your stumps. Um, just that kind of... It's all about communicating to your brain that that's where the end of your legs are now. Um so yeah, they do it. They they do a lot of stuff um, in hospital to kind of try and get that connection going. And I was quite lucky that um, that I that I managed to deal with that quite quickly. So that wasn't really a problem for me. Um, and then obviously, like you say, they change shape for the for probably for the first two years. They're they're constantly changing, and that's probably the hardest part about it. Because um, if they don't fit right, then it, it's really difficult to walk all of a sudden. If if your legs shrink, then it's like wearing shoes that are four sizes too big for you. Um, they want to fall off all the time, and um, it's just a it's a tough process because when they're not fitting right, as much as you want to progress and get better, um, you can't walk to the same level or do stuff to the same level you can when when they're fitting better. Mm. Um, so that's the hardest part is that waiting game of right they don't fit. Let's we'll get a new set cast and we'll have to wait couple of weeks until they're ready and then that whole two week process 
you you do as much as you can on the stuff you've got, but you it does hold it kind of plateaus you in terms mm. of how much you can progress. So that that's the toughest part. Been the toughest part for me is because because when they don't fit, I, it's not like I can do anything about it. I've kind of just got to sit there, wait for everyone else to to kind of get them ready for me again, and then I can carry on working towards where I want to being independent again so the frustration of that w- was tough or has been tough still is tough I suppose because yeah. it's a continuous process yeah still I, I've still probably got another six to eight months probably before they're kind of settled and I won't really have to worry about changing prosthetics all the time why, uh, why does it ta- why, why do they change shape is it because your body's still growing or does that does it happen no matter what age you are it's kind of um, obviously for me I'm still growing so that that does have some effects but the main thing is obviously um is obviously a lot of um, just changes in terms of the muscles you use. I mean, when you're walking, you use certain muscles, and obviously their muscles are still in your legs. But you don't, if you're not using them, then they just, you're going they're not they're going to go away. And then there's some parts of your legs where you you're now using muscle more than you had to before because of the extra strain, and and you build muscle over time, and that changes the shape of them. And then there's obviously the amount of swelling that you get from sort of a high trauma accident like I had um, that it quite, takes quite a while for for it to kind of the swelling to come down and and it's yeah like I say it's just a ever-changing sort of process yeah god I can't yeah can't imagine yeah it's quite amazing because all of this these body changes are going on at the same time as mental ones as well emotional roller coaster that, that is so uh I can't. I can't imagine. Did, did one keep up with the other? Or did you, did your body advance and your mind's having to adapt? And how much did muscle memory kind of play a part in all of this as well? Obviously, that's the whole muscle memory thing. Is that's what that's probably the most important part of learning to walk again. Is um, it's learning the technique to walk because obviously there's there's um, some people that that like you say they have an act like this and they, if they don't if they weren't fit before if they don't get the support they need they they got, they don't, just don't walk again and. For, um, for me, I was told by everyone, um, amputee-wise, that I'd met before, or people like Alex and Ardy, that learning to do stuff the right way early on is a is a, the, ma- the ma- most important thing. Because if you learn to do something the wrong way now, um, you don't, and you don't realise you're doing it the wrong way, then you're just gonna get yourself into a habit of doing it. Um, and yeah, that's been one of the biggest things for me is learning to to focus on it a lot early on so that this at the stage I'm at now it's kind of I'm doing things in the right way it's just about again building confidence and getting better and better on my legs right let's talk turkey how much money do you need in order to compete for the rest of this year how much have you got what's the shortfall so obviously a season in British F3 is um, £350,000 wow but that includes all the testing that I've had to to put in before the start of the season, and you more than others because of your situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've had to do not only days in the car, but days away from um, in the sim, and also developing hand controls and stuff like that. It's um, it it costs money. It's it's not something that um, these systems aren't out there already for for people like me to to drive. So it's it's been a a, a massive. Um, undertaking for the team and for me to to kind of get out on the grid this season and we, we've got sponsorship that on board but to cover the whole season um and carry on pr- progressing because the, the one thing that has been sort of prominent for me early on is that i want to 
be competitive um, in this in whatever I race in, and I want to know that everything we've done away from the, away from the track is going to make us successful on the track. And obviously that that's worked for us so far this season with getting that podium so early on. Um, so yeah, for me it's really um, it's really important to kind of make sure I, I do things right. Um, obviously when I was younger and I, I didn't have the support I had that I've got now, um, and me and my dad used to run the car. It used to be, well, this is what we've got, and we're going to do the best we can on this. But now, now I, I find it really important to, um, especially as some people see me as a role model now, disabled disability-wise. I don't, I wouldn't want to do half a job of what I know I could do, and then people think, oh, he didn't really do that well because, uh, and then then not think that it's possible. I'd rather mm. do, do it, like I say, do it right now, um, and put all put everything into it that we can now so that other people can see, right, well, it is doable. Mm. Okay, so anyone listening who would like to support you, how do they contact you? Yeah, I, it's hard, yeah, hard to explain. Obviously, um, the team Carlin, um, they're kind of, yeah, they're looking after um, getting me back racing this season. Obviously, they've been a massive help to getting me on the grid. Um, so on their website, they can get in contact with, like, email, I guess, on, on their website. Or can, there'll be contact details there anyway. Um, yeah, and... Yes, just um, any sort of support would be awesome. Because, um, like I say, it's I kind of see myself now as um, I, I, I've seen the importance of role models um, from from Lewis and Alex and Ardy, and I just want to do the best I can um, with with the racing uh, and everything I'm doing outside of it, so that other people, um, hopefully, I can make a difference to someone else. One question that I ask all my guests is what advice you'd give to your younger self. Now, obviously, you're pretty young already, so you might I might ask you that again in like 20 or 30 years' time. <laughs> but what advice would you give to a young person who perhaps finds themselves in the, in the same predicament as you and um, what kind of words of encouragement can you give them? Uh, I'd probably just say that what what's happened to me doesn't mean that life is over because it's I'm like I say I'm 18 years old I've got most of my life still ahead of me um and yeah it's pr- probably the most important thing for me is to not lose sight of the fact that all right you've had this accident but you're still here and you've still got an opportunity to to make a difference and to kind of enjoy what you've what, what you've got left um so yeah kind of just being positive with it all and um and and believing in yourself that you can you can do it because obviously a lot of people when I said that I wanted to get back racing I, obviously a lot of people supported me but there were people out there that said that oh he won't be able to do it um, so it's good to it's, it was good for me to prove them wrong and that's kind of the attitude I've got and if you have the sort of I guess a similar attitude in terms of if if you want to do something just do it and um, there's going to be some things you want to do that you can't but if you don't try you don't know Sounds a perfect note to end on. Billy Monger, thank you very much. No worries.